Open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Now just hold the place there for a while because it'll be a few minutes before we get that far. Subject tonight is the next technique, mental attitude in the Christian life. or the power of the divine viewpoint. Second Corinthians chapter 10. Father, we're grateful to thee for all that thou hast provided for us in Christ and for the privilege of studying thy word. May God the Holy Spirit open our hearts to the truth, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. A very familiar verse says, The word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit. The Bible, which is the word of God, is the only book that distinguishes between the human soul and the human spirit. The exploration of the mind is a subject which has occupied a few centuries and has reached a peak in our present 20th century. In the studies of the mind, it's very interesting to notice some of the parallels. Of course, you heard me say many times, uh, talk about the frontal lobe, which is the recipient of our conscious knowledge. Let's just cut the top off of your head for a moment and look and see what's inside. Uh, cutting off your head just a little below the scalp, we'll get a sort of an elongated job here, more or less like the dolichocephalic skull. Now actually, the frontal lobe, we have, this is the part that counts, this is the frontal lobe, we're going this way. And in the frontal lobe, you actually have two sections. And this section is on this side is usually called the impulse section. This is, of course, the psychologist, the psychologist view or the psychiatrist view. And on this side, they call it the inhibitor. Now, of course, the psychological view and the view which is advanced by psychiatry is that on this side, you have an impulse to rob a bank, and that impulse is right here. On the other side, on the inhibitor side, you have a little wire connecting these two, and on this side, you have a wire that says, no, do not rob a bank for the following reasons, one, two, three. And on this side, you have an impulse to punch someone in the nose. This is connected over on the inhibitor side with another little job that says, no, do not punch so-and-so in the nose for the following reasons, one, two, three. And so you have an, an infinite number of little wires going from the impulse to the inhibitor back and forth, and many of the things that you want to do, you do not do because these wires are attached. 
Now, in the studies of the criminal mind, which are being conducted uh, in the state of Texas, by the way, Baylor Med School is taking part in this, they say that the criminal mind has a large number of these wires cut. And uh, after World War II, uh, quite a study was made of these wires and the impulse and the inhibitor side. For example, they had a lot of cases in government hospitals of uh, wounds around the head, shrapnel wounds, for example, uh, uh, various types of head wounds. And they began to make a study of these head wounds. In fact, they collected quite a number of cases. An average case, for example, a young man before World War II, before he went to the service, would only wear black shoes, and he liked his eggs sunny side up. Now, after having received a head wound, uh, he will only uh, wear brown shoes and he won't eat eggs at all. And there were a tremendous number of changes, and they went through the life of each one, the things they liked, the colors they wore, everything. And in many cases, there was uh, certain damage to certain areas up here. Some of these lines were cut. Uh, some of these things were destroyed up here, and so they began to draw the conclusion that uh, they began to come to some conclusions with regard to the mine. Well, while they are still working on this, and will be for some time, it's also quite obvious they're missing, uh, of course, one of the big things of all. It's interesting to see some of the things they're doing. They're working, of course, right now with the fluid in the skull called serotonin, uh, serotonin, which is supposed to have a lot to do with the criminal mind and so on. But basically, the biggest problem in the mind is the problem which is very clearly revealed by Scripture, that there is a difference between, in the thought pattern and in the frontal lobe, between the soul and the spirit, and that these two actually exist, and now we'll just change this up for a moment, and we'll have a frontal lobe here, in fact, we'll have two of them, and on this side we'll have the soul, the soulish mind. Now this, of course, overflows in other areas, and the impulse and so on, and over on this side we'll have the spirit, the human spirit. Now, as far as the unbeliever is concerned, the human spirit is dormant. The soul is very active. The soul has the ability to look at life from the human viewpoint. It can categorize and perceive, understand, explain, associate in the realm of, the, of human phenomena. The human spirit has the ability to do this with divine phenomena. And with the unbeliever, the unregenerate man, the spirit mind is dormant. See, this is called spiritual death. Adam, when he started out, he had both, both sides. He had the spirit and he had the soul. And immediately after he sinned, his spirit, his human spirit, became dormant. He was spiritually dead. He no longer had the ability to fellowship with God. He no longer had the ability to understand spiritual phenomena. So consequently, he had to uh, hide when the Lord Jesus Christ came in the garden. He just simply did not have the ability to understand. The unbeliever only has an active, soulish mind. He does not have anything on the other side of the fence. The spirit part is dormant, which means this. Taking a look at this again, over here is the soul. This is dormant for the moment. 
The only possible way that he can understand any spiritual phenomenon, the only spiritual phenomenon he can understand, is the gospel. And the Holy Spirit makes this real in the soulish mind. Were it not for that, he couldn't even get it then. So the only spiritual phenomena which is clear to an unbeliever is that which somehow pertains to the gospel, which, of course, is very important in witnessing. You're just wasting your time if you try to deal with the eschatological problems of the tribulation uh, to with an unbeliever. I mean, it's just dead as far as he's concerned. He doesn't have the equipment to take it in. It's meaningless to him. And only the gospel can ever become meaningful to him because he has a soulish mind. He has a mind which can absorb and categorize, perceive in the realm of human phenomena, but his, the spirit side is dormant until regeneration takes place. And the moment a person believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, the moment he receives him as Savior, the human spirit is activated so that again he becomes, man becomes a trichotomous being. Man in his unregenerate state is dichotomous. He has a body and a soul. In his regenerate state, he has a body, soul, and spirit. He is now trichotomous. Now, there are several problems after this. Once he believes in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, whenever he learns doctrine, this doctrine will be in the spirit side of the frontal lobe or the spirit part. We have compartments here just to make it simple. All human phenomena or all human viewpoint will be on the solely side of the fence. And before a person receives Christ as Savior, depending upon his age, whatever it may be, it may be all the way from 6 to 65, he has already absorbed in the soulish frontal lobe a tremendous amount of human phenomena. And when a person first accepts Christ as Savior, experientially he's a baby because he has very little, if any, doctrine on the divine viewpoint side. And therefore, while he is a believer and while he is born again, he still has the habit of thinking and looking at life and orienting himself according to the human viewpoint of life, according to that which he already has in his frontal lobe. And one of the greatest problems of experiential Christianity is to, first of all, in a relatively short period of time, absorb enough doctrine so that when the conflict exists, there will be a predomination of the divine viewpoint rather than the human viewpoint. And so our subject is mental attitude in the Christian life. Now, there are many ailments in the realm. As long as we have a human soul, and we do, there is the possibility of a believer suffering the ailments, the mental ailments, as well as physical. Most of you know that whether a person is a Christian or not, he still gets the flu, uh, he still gets the mumps and the measles and whatnot. Christians get them as well as other people. And it's very important to realize that since Christians can get physiological diseases just as rapidly as unbelievers, it is also possible, though less likely, depending upon the content over on this side, it is possible for Christians to get mental, and I'm not covering it tonight, but emotional diseases as well. Now, some people think that a Christian cannot be mentally ill. A Christian can be mentally ill. Let me put it this way, a Christian should not be mentally ill. But there are certain illnesses on this side of the fence, and of course these illnesses are generally called psychoses. 
when they have developed into a full peak. There are, of course, mental disorders, and you should distinguish in the realm of the soul between the mental disorders and the actual psychotic conditions. Uh, any person can have mental disorders. Having mental disorders does not imply that they are mentally ill. Uh, any delusions which you have. There are uh, mental disorders in the content of thought. The first, of course, is the delusion, which is a fixed false belief of some sort. And uh, this, of course, is where doctrine and the spirit side of the mind helps out. There are obsessions of one kind or another, the ideal, the emotional, the impulse obsession, and so on. There are disorders in the train of thought, the flight of ideas. I see that every time I stand up to speak. I see disorders in the train of thought, the flight of ideas, the rapid change of direction of thought on the part of some, which means, of course, simply nothing more or less than lack of concentration. Because you do not have the ability to concentrate, of course, does not mean that you are mentally ill. Distractibility, which is rapid shift of attention, uh, which I see quite frequently, and I do not ever imply that that, of course, is uh, mental illness. Uh, I'm often distracted myself. I watch people walk back and forth and around after I talk, and it's I get to watching them and sometimes almost forget what I'm going to say. Circumstantiality is another characteristic of the disorders in the train of thought, and that means nothing more or less than beating around the bush in your language. And then there is mental inertia of one type or another, the retarding of thought. But these are not psychotic conditions. These simply show an untrained mind. Now, there are, of course, psychotic conditions, and I'm not going to develop schizophrenia and its various types, or manic depressive, or paranoia, or involuntary melancholia, or the other psychotic categories. But needless to say, they do exist. However, as far as the Christian is concerned, there is the possibility of a balance which will cancel out these things. Now, I say there is the possibility because everything depends on getting doctrine in the frontal lobe. And the more doctrine you have, the more divine viewpoint you have, and the more you can balance out the problems that exist in the soulish mind. And whether you like it or not, as long as you live in phase two, you are going to live in the area of two great inner conflicts. So let's take a look at the Christian as a square. And here is the Christian, and he has the Holy Spirit indwelling him, and he has the old sin nature. This is the first great area of conflict. One, for example, which is described in the fifth chapter of Galatians. The spirit fights against the flesh, and the flesh wars against the spirit. The other is the conflict between the soul and the human spirit, or the human viewpoint versus the divine viewpoint. And there's a tremendous conflict here. For example, students in college, Christian students in college, uh, every day in their academic area are constantly absorbing the human viewpoint. They may take courses in philosophy and psychology and so on, which simply give them the view human viewpoint of life. If they do not keep up in their personal Bible study, if they do not expose themselves to uh, the teaching of the Word of God, then they find themselves, where many students do, uh, with a tremendous number of doubts developing and problems developing, simply because this part of the frontal lobe is getting filled up and this part of the frontal lobe is going negative. No doctrine. Nothing to balance it out. Now, the beautiful thing about the Christian is that any normal believer can be perfectly balanced. But the balance depends upon 
a tremendous absorption and intake of doctrine, and you simply cannot take in enough doctrine as a Christian. The more doctrine you take in, the better off you are. You may not apply it today, but in your frontal lobe you have a launching pad, and eventually you will apply it, and it becomes very, very necessary for the believer to take in as much doctrine as possible. You can never get too much of it. Well, there is, of course, another problem as far as the frontal lobe is concerned, and that is the problem that when you look at life from the human viewpoint, well, let's do it this way. Here is Mr. Average John Q. Christian, and here is his frontal lobe up here. We'll just enlarge it a bit. And over here is the Bible, the Word of God, and the Bible, which is the Word of God, de always declares the divine viewpoint. Now here is, of course, HV for human viewpoint, and both of these, of course, are going into the frontal lobe. For example, just an illustration of human viewpoint, you may, may read an ad, you ladies, that if you go to your drugstore and get a certain type of mud pack in a tube, it will remove all of your wrinkles. Well, that's human viewpoint. But then it uh, may sound very good, and one or two people who uh, have uh, had their face lifted <clears throat> four or five times and have reached age 65 and do not appear to have wrinkles may uh, be paid $10,000 to say that uh, the mud pack, which comes from a certain spring and a certain state, uh, which is put up in this tube, will remove your wrinkles. So you rush down and buy it. That's human viewpoint. You're not going to get rid of your wrinkles. You're just kidding yourself. I found that out when I was in the cavalry and I couldn't get the wrinkles out of a saddle with mud or anything else. Now, the divine viewpoint of life says, look, no matter how old you are and you don't have to be afraid of acting your age or even revealing your age, you can have a perfect inner beauty. You see, all along the way, there's this conflict, human viewpoint versus divine viewpoint, and it goes on all the time. Men face it in business, women face it uh, uh, in the home and in domestic situations, and uh, people face it everywhere. Everyone who is a Christian, if you even have one DV thought, which is doctrine, if you even have one point of doctrine in your frontal lobe, the conflict is on. Now, I suspect there are probably a few Christians who are not bothered much with this conflict because they have yet to get the first point of doctrine home. But they are relatively few. Everyone knows at least one point of doctrine. Maybe it's only eternal security. Or maybe it's just simply a point of uh, soteriology. Christ died for our sins. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But the more doctrine that you get in your frontal lobe, the greater you can see the development of the conflict. Now, you've heard me say many times, and I repeat it because it's a part of this study, that as far as the Christian life is concerned, experiential Christianity is what you think. You are what you think, not what you do. What you do is very secondary to what you think. You can, uh, of course, be very hypocritical and do certain things to make an impression. People always do things to make impressions. And to some extent, every member of the human race is a hypocrite, whether he will admit it or not. Well, what you think is what really counts. Religion puts on a front. Jesus condemned religion for putting on the front, the whitewashed tombstone, outside beautiful, inside full of dead man's bones. And so Christianity emphasizes what you think. You are what you think. This is what the Proverbs tells us. Now, suppose that you have 
taken in doctrine into your frontal lobe, and this line is open and there's a tremendous flow going into the frontal lobe. All right, what are you going to have as a result of having doctrine in the frontal lobe? You're going to have inner happiness, you're going to have peace, you're going to have stability, you're going to have the things that are really wonderful. You are going to orient to every circumstance in life. But on the other hand, suppose that you look at life from the human viewpoint. Suppose this pipe is wide open and there's a continuous flow. What do you have in here? Well, you have worry and anxiety, and the results on the outside are very interesting. We call this psychosomatics. You may have eczema, you may have rashes, you may have allergies, you may have hypertension, you may have goiter, you may have migraines. Now, this doesn't mean these are the sole causes of these things, and you're not to assume that everyone who has an ulcer is in this particular pipe. They, but these things are produced by just simply worrying. And you know a lot of Christians, they just spend all their time worrying and being upset about something. Even if you have to worry about what you were worried yesterday and you simply are worried because you can't remember it. Now this happens. There are some people who develop the habit of worry. And of course, psychosomatics means that uh, whatever you, if you worry for prolonged periods of time up here in what we call the suke, this overflows into the soma, into the body, and the result is that you have certain kinds of diseases and so on. Now, so much for a general introduction of the conflict and uh, the overlap with certain psychological aspects. Now, let's find out, by way of introduction to this passage, 2 Corinthians 10, let's find out about the two viewpoints of life. And we start in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 7 through 9. Let's establish the existence of two viewpoints of life. Isaiah chapter 55. Verses 7 through 9. And the purpose of this passage is simply to establish the existence of the two viewpoints. Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. You will notice the emphasis here on the thoughts. Let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For, now here's the subject. Verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. All right, there are two kinds of thoughts going around the front alone. That which is known as my thoughts and that which is known as your thoughts. My thoughts, divine viewpoint, that which is contained in the Word of God. Your thoughts, human viewpoint. Everything you see on television, everything you read on a billboard, everything you hear in a classroom, everything that you hear on the street, and so on. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, saith the Lord. Now you will notice a correlation here. If you think a certain way, you have certain ways. You do something a certain way. You have a way of life. If you think another way, then you have another way of life. But it all starts with a thought, all right? Here is the soul, and here is the human spirit. If you are looking at life from the human viewpoint, the soulish mind, then you have certain ways, uh, namely fear, anxiety, uh, moving into panic palace, and so on. But if you are looking at life, if you have doctrine up here, and this means divine viewpoint, and if you look at that a certain way, then you have certain ways. You have peace and happiness and stability and orientation to life and so on. And so the conflict is here. The results are here. Whether you ever have inner happiness or inner peace or stability or inner beauty or these things, it all depends on whether the divine viewpoint 
wins out over the human viewpoint or whether the human viewpoint wins out over the divine. It's a very important issue, therefore. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Notice in those last two verses a very definite distinction, a line of cleavage between the divine and the human viewpoint of life. Now, 1 Corinthians 2.16 tells us the Bible is the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ, and the mind of Christ is the Bible. So if we want the divine viewpoint, we must go to the Bible. But you have to be careful of one thing. The Bible often expresses the human viewpoint as well in contrast to it. For example, any believer expressing a fear in life, any believer showing anxiety, uh, the viewpoint of the book of Ecclesiastes, and so on, this is human viewpoint. But the divine viewpoint is always in context and is always brought out by contrast. Now, just to establish the principle that the Christian way of life is what you think, I think we ought to take at least five different areas of the Christian way of life to illustrate. What does the Bible have to say about mental attitude? I'm going to illustrate from five areas. We do not have time to cover this tremendous subject. It's way too extensive. All right, first of all, let's take one category called worldliness. Now, worldliness is not what you do. Every once in a while I hear a sermon that may sets my teeth on edge because it's on worldliness. Usually some pulpit thumper with a voice, uh, a big voice but a little brain, will get up and start talking about what is worldliness. And he really beats the drums for a lot of things. But he doesn't beat the drum for enough things. Usually it's what, he's a man who's ha either had a sheltered life or a very rugged life and wants to forget it all, one or the other. And uh, so he's great on he uh, on everything he might call honky-tonking to wearing bright-colored clothes and so on. might be anything. But the trouble is you can never go far enough as long as you're going to make worldliness something you do. You just never can get to the end of the line. And the reason for that is because the Bible doesn't say that worldliness is something you do. Now that shocks some of you, so I'll let that sink in for a minute. Because some of you are just about to break out of the shackles and the bondage. No, worldliness is not something you do. Worldliness is something you think. And the verse for this is Romans 12.2. Now, you have to start with the context, which is Romans 12.1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto him, which is your reasonable service. Verse 2. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. How? By changing your ways and dropping your bad habits, or do not wear bright colors, or do not wear makeup, or stop having a temporary or a permanent, whatever you want to call it. Uh, or stop smiling. Or stop hitting the nightclub circuit. Or etc. You name it. You can name almost anything and it can be construed as worldliness. Now, what's wrong with all that? Well, it doesn't say anything about that here. It says that worldliness is what you think by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what the will of God is, namely that it is good and acceptable and perfect. 
Worldliness is a mental attitude. Worldliness is what you think. Now, it may result in a lot of things. Surely a neighbor seeing me uh, go out early in the morning when I sometimes did to get the morning paper, which I no longer do since the subscription was canceled for putting the JWs on the front page. But uh, I might go out in the morning just to find out what's going on in my favorite football team or my favorite baseball team. And uh, sur surely as any of the neighbors see me walk out to get the paper, they would never think of me as worldly, especially if I happen to have my... Uh, uh, robe on or something. I almost forgot about it. Gathers dust in the closet or something. But I might walk out there and pick up the paper and they say, my, there's a dear saint. Well, you know, what I am doing doesn't seem to be very innocuous. In fact, uh, I've never heard anyone preach anything about reading the sport page first. It's one place where you get some fair information. It's not very accurate, especially when football season rolls around. I'd like to see some sports writer who knew something about football, write up the football stories. Obviously, he was there, but he didn't get much. So, what's wrong with this? Well, I can be just as worldly as anything in the world. It all depends on what I'm thinking. Surely, when I sit down and eat my breakfast, you aren't going to call me worldly for eating food. I might sit down to a nice steak for breakfast. I like steak for breakfast. Is that worldly? No, it isn't worldly. Because it isn't what I'm doing, it's what I'm thinking. Now, I might be very worldly while eating a steak, and I might not. It all depends on what I'm thinking. Surely, driving an automobile under normal circumstances is not construed as worldly. People do it all the time. Everyone drives a car, almost everyone. Should I, in order to avoid the stigma of being worldly, stop driving a car and start riding a bicycle? Well, you see, where do you stop? If I turn on the television and look at it, am I worldly? Well, I could be, and I could not be. It all depends on what I'm thinking, whether I have sense enough to cut it off after I've looked for a couple of seconds. You see, everything depends on what you think, not what you do. Frankly, it isn't even where you are, although certainly there are certain places where uh, where you are isn't too compatible. I can pretty well tell what you're thinking when you're certain places, but the point is it's what you think. It isn't what you do, it's what you think. Now, worldliness is the predominance of the human viewpoint in the frontal lobe. And the antithesis of worldliness is occupation with Christ or the predominance of the divine viewpoint in the frontal lobe. Suppose that I know that I can get a promotion by being nice to a certain person and ug shudder thud his wife. So the human viewpoint says be nice to the old girl in spite of it all, even though you can't stand her and so on. Divine viewpoint says the Lord will promote me on the basis of my doing my job as unto him. It's a part of my testimony, so I can take my choice. See, it's what you think. 
not what you do. Worldliness, or lack of it, is a mental attitude, Colossians 3.2. Keep on thinking about things above, literally. It says, set your affection on things above in the King James, but it should be keep on thinking. All right, inner peace. Peace on the inside, which is about the only peace available to us in phase two. Peace on the inside is a mental attitude. Isaiah 26, 3 and 4. Thou will keep him in what kind of peace? Perfect peace, not haphazard peace or here today and gone tomorrow peace, but perfect peace. How? Whose mind, M-I-N-D, mind is stayed on thee. Peace is a mental attitude. It isn't a set of circumstances. It isn't success or adversity. It isn't have or have not. It's a mental attitude. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Or Philippians 4, 7. The peace of God which passeth all understanding shall garrison your heart and mind. What's the difference between heart and mind? There is no difference. They are the same word in the original language. God's peace, and a peace which cannot be understood, will garrison the mind. All right, giving. There's a great deal of emphasis today and a great deal of human viewpoint in giving. Charlie Brown just gave 50. Who else will give 50? Put down uh, John Jones over there. He'll give 50 and so on. That's human viewpoint. That's all wrong. Giving is not the size of the donation. It isn't the percentage of your income. Giving is a mental attitude. For those of you who are a little weak on this, we'll be covering it on Friday night and about uh, a week from Friday night. We'll start it. The Doctrine of Giving, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. But suffice to say right here that giving is a mental attitude. 2 Corinthians 8.12, 2 Corinthians 8.19, 2 Corinthians 9.7. And you can give all the money in the world... And if your mental attitude is wrong, you're a dead duck. It doesn't count with God. It doesn't cut any ice with him at all. It's your attitude. Every man accordingly as he purposeth in his mind, so let him give. And how? What are the negatives? Not grudgingly. Not out of pressure. It's a mental attitude. And that even means if you desire to give, and if you have the right mental attitude, and you have nothing to give, it still counts as giving. That's a shocker, isn't it? Someday I'm going to preach a sermon on how to give money without dropping a dime in the basket or plate or whatever we use around here. Some churches I've been, it's a bucket. Optimistic. <laughs> so you see, again, the Christian way of life is a mental attitude. It's what you think. Character is what you think, not what you see. True character is the thought pattern. Romans 12, 16 brings this out. Philippians 2, 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Mind emphasized. And Proverbs 23, 7. Every Christian ought to know the last part of that verse. You are what you think is what it literally says. Stability is a mental attitude. 2 Thessalonians 2, 2. That ye be not soon shaken in mind. 2 Timothy 1, 7, God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. Stability is a mental attitude. All right, we've already mentioned the fact from Hebrews 4, 12 that the Bible is a critic of the thoughts 
of the mind. That's Hebrews 4.12. And in the context before us now, you can turn to 2 Corinthians 10, we have something of the great struggle between mental attitude, human viewpoint, and mental attitude, divine viewpoint. Now I, Paul, myself, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Meekness and gentleness are both mistranslations, actually. The word meekness means a mental attitude of grace, always giving others the benefit of the doubt. Gentleness means fairness of mind. Both of them are Greek words for mental attitude. I, Paul, myself, beseech you by two mental attitudes, the mental attitude of grace and the mental attitude of fairness of Christ. And then Paul quotes one of the criticisms which is running around Corinth. People are criticizing Paul in Corinth. They're running him down. And they're saying that Paul, when he's in your presence, he's a mouse. When he gets out of the city limits, he's a roaring lion. So now he quotes the criticism of his enemies in Corinth. And he quotes it in a very sarcastic vein. Who in presence am base among you, but being absent am bold toward you. So he just hits the critics once on his way by them. But then he resumes, But I beseech you, I keep on begging you, that I may not be bold when I am present. In other words, I don't want to come back to Corinth and have to brace you with the confidence wherewith I think to be bold against some. There are some, of course, who will have to be braced. I'll take care of them when I come. Which think of us as if, and then we have a second quotation of the criticism of Paul. They say that Paul's walking according to the flesh. As if he, we walked according to the flesh. Now, this is the big criticism. For though we walk in the sphere of the flesh, even though we are still in this world, phase two, we do not fight according to the standards of cosmos diabolicus. We don't want fight according to human standards. In other words, Paul is now about to emphasize, yes, we're in this world. We live here in this world, but we do not fight according to the criterion, according to the norm of the world. We have a tremendous amount of spiritual ammunition, and therefore our fighting is in the spiritual realm. Now, this fight goes on in the frontal lobe. This is a fight in the brain. And you may get mad at yourself and try to damage your brain. You might hit yourself with a mallet or something on the skull, and that doesn't solve anything. You just get scar tissue from it, and you'll be a little more stupid next time. Some people actually think that when it talks about fighting here, it, does not re it uh, refers to fighting as a soldier or something. And, of course, this has nothing whatever to do with a soldier except as an analogy. And I know of one or two cases where believers have actually taken the position that a Christian should not serve his country in a military capacity. And, of course, the Word of God teaches very clearly that this is our responsibility and the Christians should actually make the best soldiers. For our weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Now, it appears for the moment as if we're talking about getting away from 
weapons, but we are not, because the very next phrase indicates what strongholds are conquered. The word for stronghold in the Greek is a rock fort, and it's a reference to the Cilician pirates who had impregnable fortresses that took Rome a long time to whip these pirates. They had tremendous forts. Casting down imaginations and every thought that exalted itself against the knowledge of God, this is the area of the warfare, and that's why we cannot use weapons of this world. Our weapon in this battle must be the divine viewpoint of life. Now, every time that we face a difficult situation, I'll call that situation reality. Here is a situation called reality. And we face a difficult situation. In fact, everyone has a series of difficult situations going uh, throughout life. And when we face these uh, difficulties in reality, we have a tendency to do one of two things. It all depends to some extent whether you are male or female as to what you do. But there is a tendency to follow the human viewpoint. We face a difficult situation, so we move in a direction. We move into dream world. This is dream world. Or, and or, human viewpoint. Now, it all depends on which, on what shift you find yourself. If you are a male, you're on the night shift and moving into dream world. During the day, you should be earning, you should be working, and uh, to enter into dream world at that time is incompatible with doing your job as unto the Lord. But once you uh, arrive at your home in the evening, why, this is the time to go into dream world. This is the time to pick up the paper and bury yourself behind it in your most comfortable chair, and when the children come up to ask questions, you answer with a series of grunts. Two, no. Three, yes. One, don't bother me. Uh, you see, you uh, face a difficult situation. Maybe you have a nagging wife. Maybe you have a nagging boss. Maybe you've had some business reverses. So you must go into dream world. Now, some people find dream world in a paper. Some people have special kinds of papers uh, uh, or special kind of magazines. It might be anything from a gun magazine to a horse magazine to the Wall Street Journal. It might be anything. It might be the encyclopedia. But you see, you're getting away from the reality of the situation. Uh, maybe uh, Joe down the street is also, you have a mutual, little, you have a little club and you go into dream world together and you crack a couple of bottles of beer together or something. See, all this is a part of going into dream world. Don't face reality, whatever it may be. Now, of course, this is the night shift. The men usually get in it, to, in it on the night shift. Now, of course, the poor little lady in the house, she can't uh, do much in the night shift because once the monster comes in, she has to have dinner ready and everything has to be just right, so she has to hustle. So she's on the day shift. You will notice that the TV programs and before that the radio programs always have the soap operas during the day. That's to catch those on the day shift. And uh, so she may pick up some uh, magazine, True Romances, to try to better her position by going into dream world. Or she may just uh, look at these soap operas or something and dream of better things than the monster she has for her husband. One way or another, you see, this is the human viewpoint. Now, of course, the, real, the people who are in real trouble are the people who never take a shift. They go on the day and the night shift. 
And, of course, you they get to dreaming so much that uh, they usually uh, hurt themselves pretty badly now and then. They're quite vulnerable to changes of circumstances. All right. Here's reality, and there's another way the Christian can go. This is called divine viewpoint and or doctrine. Every time you face a difficult situation, you can go the way of divine viewpoint. And here's where the faith rest technique comes in. All things work together for good. I believe it. In everything give thanks. I thank the Lord for it. Casting all your cares on him. Now it's no longer a problem. The Lord's carrying it. Why? Because the battle is the Lord's. Therefore, I'm standing still watching the deliverance of the Lord. The Lord will fight for me today. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of promises which make up the divine viewpoint or doctrines. God is absolute righteousness because he's righteousness. He's also justice because he's justice. He's fair. Because he's fair, he can only be fair to me. Therefore, everything he permits to come my way is for my benefit. Therefore, there is blessing in this regardless of. No matter how you slice it, doctrinally, promises, or any other way, you can face every real situation from the divine viewpoint. Now, here's the result. If you look at life, if you enter dream world, when you come back to reality, you're all shook up by anything in reality because it doesn't jibe with dream world. But if you look at life from the divine viewpoint, you come back with inner happiness, inner peace, no matter what the circumstances of life may be. Now, that's what we're talking about in these two verses. Verse 5 says, constantly casting down imaginations. Imaginations is a reference to dream world. Constantly casting down imaginations, a present active participle. And every high thing, you have a boss, you don't like him, he bullies you, he's in a position to bully you, and you can't do anything about it, you might lose your job, you think of your job in terms of security, therefore you think you've had it, and consequently you knuckle under to his bullying. What do you do when you get into dream world? You dream of clobbering him in 45 different ways. You try everything from Apache torture to you are the boss and you are telling him where to go and what to do. Well, see, that's dream world. And everyone has a tendency to enter into some kind of dream world. And dream world is made up of two antithetical types of circumstances. Very, very pleasant circumstances where there is the utmost of compatibility and very unpleasant circumstances where your enemies are all having a hard time at your hand. And both, of course, destroy orientation in reality. So, casting down imaginations, every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God is the divine viewpoint. And please notice it is knowledge. It is something we must have in the frontal lobe. It isn't the Bible exalting yourself against the Bible. It is knowledge. It is the Bible transferred to the frontal lobe. And please notice, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and furthermore in verse 6, having in readiness to revenge all disobedience. To revenge disobedience means nothing more or nothing less than to stand up against all expressions of human viewpoint. When your obedience is fulfilled, the fulfillment of obedience is the absorption of the divine viewpoint of life. Now, this means simply that in your thought pattern you can have your perfect happiness or you can provide your own misery. If you look at life from human viewpoint, if you live in the ivory tower, if you live in dream world, 
If you live in the realm of rationalization, then you are going to provide your own misery. You do not need outside help. And you have dedicated yourself to perpetual misery. But if you look at life from the divine viewpoint, and if you get doctrine in the frontal lobe, then you're going to provide happiness for yourself, stability and peace and orientation at all times. Now, the soulish mind varies with individuals. There are certainly there are certain tendencies. Some people have stronger minds, humanly speaking, than others. Some people inherit, inherit tendencies of weakness, and as long as they're under no particular pressure, they hold up fine. But as soon as the pressure comes, then, of course, they give way in the mind, and they move into a psychotic tendency or to a true psychotic condition. Now, this is all changed for the believer because the believer has the activation of the human spirit. And if there is any information up in the spirit part of the mind, there's any doctrine, if there are any promises up there, then immediately, no matter what you had, no matter what you inherited, you may have inherited certain weaknesses. So what? There are certain kinds of people who inherit physiological weaknesses. For example, I remember the Indians out in Arizona. If you uh, uh, get them off the desert there or off the plateaus and put them in the cities, the next thing you know, they have some, uh, they have a tendency to get tuberculosis or other diseases of that sort. Uh, they have, uh, they're healthy and they're fine, but you put them in a certain environment and weaknesses come out. Well, when you put human beings in certain types of pressure environments, weakness comes out. For example, one of the weaknesses that we faced in military service, we called it combat fatigue. It just simply meant that certain people can only be shot at for a certain period of time, and then they can't take it anymore, and they fall apart. They crack up. And if uh, you carried it out long enough, I don't know that it ever has been, actually, but eventually, every, any member of the human race, after being shot at for prolonged periods of time, would crack up. I mean, that is theoretically what would happen. I don't think anyone's ever faced probably that long a period, where you are constantly, constantly... Uh, in danger of death one way or another, uh, facing strange situations, abnormal circumstances of combat. Uh, the, if you will recall, at the end of World War II, we had a very definite system, uh, uh, depending upon circumstances, but the average uh, tour of duty in a combat situation for a combat crew would be 25 missions. Some places it was less. Other cases, it was a little longer, depending upon the circumstances. Why? Because a person can only be exposed, the human mind can only be exposed so long to conditions of that sort, and then they just crack up. Now, there were, there were certain, of course, obvious differences. There were certain people who did not crack up. There were certain people who went through a great deal and did not crack up. I know of one Christian man who had a marvelous testimony because... In his frontal lobe, he had a tremendous amount of doctrine, and he went through everything you could go through. And he had uh, uh, he had uh, he had to ditch a number of planes. He had all the circumstances. He had flak going all around him. He had the engines catching fire. He uh, had uh, fighters uh, coming in from all sides and so on. He faced everything, and he didn't crack up ever because he constantly had this tremendous resource in his spirit mind. He kept pulling in all of the promises and all the doctrines, and he stabilized in every situation of that sort. 
I had other friends who, as believers, were in uh, ground forces, and one of them went through more combat than probably any man in his theater, wound it up as a captain, and he did not crack up under any circumstance. He went through everything. He had everything happen to him. He sat in a foxhole and had a tang, had a uh, ponzer go over him. Uh, he went through a barrage of 88 mills a number of times. He was always, uh, he uh, faced a lot of uh, small arms fire of various types. He went long periods of time without a hot meal, 35 or 40 days without one hot meal, uh, all sorts of things. And yet never once did he crack up. Well, there are a lot of people that just simply would fall apart. And humanly speaking, that's true. But you see, he had on the spirit side of the fence, he had a tremendous load of doctrine. He'd just pull it over and use it. So they oriented to every set of circumstance, every situation. Now, the point is this. Normally, there's probably a breaking point for every human mind. We don't know what it is. This has never been carried out. There isn't enough experimentation to know. But the exception would be when there is a born-again believer involved, and that believer has doctrine in his frontal lobe, and he uses it. And he faces reality a maximum number of times from the divine viewpoint rather than the human viewpoint. Now, without developing this particular passage any further, and of course we could, but I wanted to give you the illustration of this, mental attitude in the crisis. Illustration, mental attitude in the crisis, 1 Samuel, chapter 16. <clears throat> now, of course, you see the principle. We have to try to cover a subject like this in one shot. I don't know whether it's advisable or not. Uh, but in order to move on and to get the whole realm of basic, it becomes necessary. And the principle is simply this. Uh, constantly, you have in your frontal lobe now human viewpoint and divine viewpoint. And every time you face any type of crisis or any type of situation, you look at it either from one, the human viewpoint, or the divine viewpoint. If you look at it from the human viewpoint, you can go through some form of negative sublimation. Uh, you can go into dream world. You can build your little ivory tower around you. Or you can look at life from the divine viewpoint. You can take the promises of the Word of God, you can take the doctrines and apply them to the situation. Now, the story is the story of a boy who was coming into manhood. His name is David. And David became a great man overnight, although really it wasn't overnight. There was a, quite a period of preparation. There was quite a period of training. And the reason that David went from totally unknown to a great man is because he developed the habit of constantly looking at life from the divine viewpoint in every circumstance that arose. It's very interesting to notice that while David was coming up and becoming a great man through the predominance of the divine viewpoint in his frontal lobe, another great man in Israel by the name of Samuel was going downhill because the human viewpoint predominated. For example, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord said unto Samuel, who has been a great believer and a great servant of the Lord, but is about to crack up, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul? Now Saul, from the previous context, has been rejected by God. 
So human viewpoint, mourn for Saul. Divine viewpoint, separate yourself from Saul. And here is Samuel mourning for Saul. So we see already evidences of the human viewpoint predominating in his frontal lobe. Seeing I have rejected him. I have rejected him, divine viewpoint. God has rejected Saul from reigning over Israel. Fill thine horn with oil and go. I will send thee to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king from among his sons. Divine viewpoint, I have provided a king. Now Samuel said, verse 2, how can I go? If Saul hear it, he will kill me. Now here's the issue. Let's take a look at Samuel. Here's his frontal lobe. And over here is the soulish mind. Here is the human viewpoint. Human viewpoint says what? He will kill me. Saul hears it, he will kill. Over here is the spirit. And this is, of course, divine viewpoint. Now, divine viewpoint has some information. All the information really needs is one word, go. Who said it? God. Who's God? God is more, is, is one in who, with whom I have a relation. God is my Savior. God is my protector. God is uh, always keeps his promises. He's immutable. Therefore, if he says go, he will protect. He is faithful to me. God is love. Therefore, he's interested in me. Uh, God is righteous. Therefore, he will be fair with me. If God says go, God will provide the protection. That's divine viewpoint. Now, which does, does uh, Samuel express? Human viewpoint. He says, Saul will kill me, which indicates, of course, the signs of deterioration in Samuel. He expresses the human viewpoint. Now, as Samuel goes, so goes Israel. You remember this. He will kill me. Because in the very next chapter, we are going to see a great valley, the valley of Ephraim's Damim, the field of blood. On one side of the valley is the bivouac of Israel. On the other side is the bivouac of the Philistines. And a big, loud-mouth, nine-foot muscle man with a boiler plate on his chest and a spear that probably weighed about 20 pounds is going to come out and trumpet a challenge to the children of Israel. And they can look at this bird from two viewpoints. Human viewpoint, he's a great big rough man and he'll tear me to bits. Divine viewpoint, he's just a loud mouth representing heathenism and God is on my side. I'll go out there and take him on any time. The battle is the Lord's. Now, Samuel is already looking at life from the human viewpoint, and so, of course, Samuel has a big congregation, all Israel, and so do the people in the congregation. And no one can look at life from the human viewpoint without going into neutral. And you can spend a whole life being miserable simply because you entertain in the frontal lobe the human viewpoint of life. It's a guarantee to be miserable. Probably ought to have an invitation. Everyone who wants to be miserable, come forward, and we'll pick out 10 or 12 different human viewpoints, adopt these every time you face a crisis, and you will be guaranteed to live a miserable, horrible, monotonous, up-and-down, wide-swing, unstable existence. And you will never know what it means to have inner peace and inner happiness, even though it is available to you as a believer. All right, again, we, uh, he, of course, the Lord talked him out of that. And then verse 6, And it came to pass when they were come that he looked on Eliab. Now, of course, uh, when the Bethlehemite 
brought in Jesse the Bethlehemite, brought in his sons. He brought in six out of seven because Jesse's a man who looks at life from the human viewpoint. The youngest son, the boy number eight, is out with a sheep and he wants, uh, you see, he's saving the fee of hiring shepherds. His son does it. And therefore, uh, why even hire a shepherd for a day to go out there? That costs money, human viewpoint. And uh, furthermore, the, uh, the kid couldn't possibly be considered for a king. He's just a kid, and uh, I really haven't put much time in on him. He probably doesn't know how to comb his hair. The boy's out there with a the sheep. Besides, he smells, and one bath won't get the smell of the woolies out of him. Been living with a sheep all this time. So we'll just keep him out there, human viewpoint. You know, it's a tremendous how to keep David from being anointed king, you have a tremendous circle of human viewpoint. We're going to keep him out. We're going to shut him out. We're not going to let him move forward. But God breaks through all of that. So he looked on Eliab. Now, I want you to remember Eliab because Eliab is a brand new second lieutenant, just came out of the Rotsey Pipe, ROTC. He's a very handsome uh, man. He's uh, very, very handsome and certainly makes a wonderful impression. And, uh, there, and he's on his way to the army and probably standing there in his new uniform. And this is again what Samuel thinks in verse 6. And it came to pass when they were come that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Why? Because he was so nice looking. He just looked like a king. Had a great big physique and a handsome face and a nice smile. And uh, that uniform looked so well on him, about ready to join his platoon and to go out to fight the Philistines. And so he uh, rationalizes human viewpoint. Now, but the Lord said unto Samuel, verse 7, divine viewpoint, look not on his countenance, his handsome face, or on the height of his stature, his nice physique. I have refused him. That's divine viewpoint. My, a nice looking chap. I think he must be the one. That's human viewpoint. Divine viewpoint, he's not the one. I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance. Human viewpoint. But, contrast, the Lord looketh on the heart. Divine viewpoint. And the two are in contrast. Well, he went down the line, all six. And then he went down the line again. He says, is this the lot? And he said, no. There's one boy. Verse 11. Samuel said unto Jesse, Are here all thy children? Six of them there. You'd think that'd be enough. No, it isn't. There remaineth yet the youngest. And behold, get this now. I didn't bring him in, Sam, because he keepeth the sheep. And of course, that's uh, quite obvious. Who wants to bring in a boy that's been out with the sheep all this time? As I say, it's very hard to make him presentable. He'd probably have to take six or seven days, and we'd run him through a series of vats, and he'd probably come out eventually smelling like a human being. And then we probably could find something that would fit him around here, but you know we haven't bought any suits for him because he's just keeping the sheep. We really can't afford uh, uh, nice clothes for all the boys. And you understand how it is. We just simply couldn't get him around here. Human viewpoint all the way, right down through the whole thing. But now let's stop for a minute. He keepeth the sheep. When God wants to prepare the greatest king of all time, how does he do it? Well, he puts a man out with the woolies. The sheep are the most exasperating of all so-called domestic animals. I don't think you could drag me out to keep sheep. I've been around sheep all I want to be. I don't like the smell. I can't stand lamb. I can't even get in the vicinity of lamb without smelling sheep. Furthermore, sheep are really stupid. They don't even have natural intelligent instincts like other of uh, domestic animals have. For example, I've seen dogs that are smart, seen horses that were smart, but sheep are all dumb. 
Now, don't uh, think at the moment I'm comparing you to sheep, although, of course, you know, congregations are called sheep. But uh, <laughs> the point is this. Uh, for example, when the, uh, the sheep can't smell water, and yet they're terribly thirsty, and they will die of thirst, even they'll die of thirst very close to a water hole, simply because they can't smell water. Now, the goats in the flock can smell water, and they dash on ahead of the water, and they lap it up. And then, of course, the goats have very bad dispositions. They hate sheep. So what the goats do is they, they stomp around in the water and make it real muddy because, you see, no self-respecting sheep will drink muddy water. And the sheep will stay there all day and they'll even die of thirst before they'll drink muddy water. They'll wait till the mud settles to the bottom. So obviously you can see that uh, it's very exasperating uh, to handle sheep. And then sheep can get into the craziest places. I have a friend out in West Texas, broke a leg one time because he was trying to retrieve one of his sheep off a little ledge surrounded by cactus. And uh, he was trying to crawl and avoid the cactus at the same time get on the ledge with the sheep. There wasn't room for both. And obviously he had to leave. And so he fell, broke his leg, all because he was trying to get a sheep out of this ledge. And, of course, they get under cactus. You may think that it's rather silly for a shepherd to carry a long stick with a curlicue in the end. Well, that curlicue is to hook the woolies and to haul them out from under cactus because it's much better to haul them through the cactus than to crawl through it yourself. So sheep are very exasperating in a lot of ways, and they're very helpless, and they all wander out in different directions at times, and when sheep get scattered, it's a mess to try to get them all back together again. It's very difficult. And so if you want to have a person who wants to learn to rule people, the best place to start him is with sheep. Because if he can, with patience and love and kindness and thoughtfulness and other good characteristics of leadership, if he can handle sheep, he can handle people. People are never as exasperating as sheep. And that's why David was learning in the greatest school of all. Now, out there with the sheep, David had learned two lessons already that were going to make him not only eventually the greatest king that Israel ever had and the greatest king the world has ever known, but they were going to make him the greatest servant of the Lord in his day. A man who was declared for generations afterward in the Scripture to be the greatest king of all. And he would also be the man for the crisis. Why? Because you can't live with a sheep without developing the divine viewpoint. If you survive with a sheep, you must look at life from the divine viewpoint. Now, how do we know this? Well, in the next chapter, you might turn over just for the moment to the next chapter. David, when he heard the uh, challenge of Goliath, he accepted the challenge. And as soon as he accepted the challenge, they hauled him off to the command post. They hauled him in to Saul's tent. And Saul, when Saul heard that someone had volunteered to fight Goliath, he was a little flabbergasted. And, of course, in verse 33 of the next chapter, Saul said to David, Now, here's the old human viewpoint. You face it every time you turn around. Thou art not able to go up against the Philistine to fight with him, for thou art but a youth. See, there's the old story again. You haven't had any experience in war. You're just a kid. You know, it's an amazing thing about experience. Experience has uh, some characteristics of being the greatest human paradox of all time. First of all, you can't get a job or you can't be hired or you can't do it because you don't have enough experience. You're just a green kid. And then after you have a tremendous amount of experience and get seasoned a little bit in middle age, around 55 or 60, then you're too old. We don't want you. So experience is always a rather fantastic thing and uh, has a lot of ins and outs that are sort of ridiculous. 
But this, of course, was the human viewpoint expressed by Saul. You're just a kid. You haven't even gone through ROTC. You haven't been drafted. You haven't even been through basic training. You've never carried any kind of a weapon of war. Oh, sure, you've carried the shepherd's tools, but that doesn't count. Those are not military weapons. Thou art but a youth. And, get this, and he, Goliath, he's a man of war from his youth. Why, Goliath has been fighting for years. He's the toughest man in their army. There are six giants, there are five giants over there, actually. And Goliath is the toughest of all. And Goliath has a, well, listen, if we were putting down his experience, he's killed so many hundreds here, there, and everywhere. He kills so many per battle. He has the greatest batting average of killing people of anyone in the whole area. And you're just a kid. You've never even killed a person. You've never fought a person. You've never been trained for fighting. Why, you don't know right face from left face. You couldn't even, you haven't even gone through the school of the soldier. How do you expect to stand up to him? See, this is the human viewpoint. Now, David has had some experience, and David's experience is stated in verses 34 and 35. David never told anyone about this, and I want to summarize David's experience. While David was still out with the sheep, his father said, He keepeth the sheep. And out there God was training him. They used to have lions in Palestine. I understand they still have a few. The desert lion, and he's a pretty rough customer. Uh, he, of course, uh, has all the characteristics of a lion, such as running the uh, 100 meters in five seconds, which is much faster than we can do it. Uh, he also can flip, he can grab something in his teeth up to a calf and flip his neck and throw a dead calf over a eight or ten foot thorn fence. So he's strong. He's just a rugged customer all the way around. And... Uh, on one occasion, while David was out keeping the sheep, a lion bounced into camp, a hungry lion, and picked up a little lamb and took off. Well, now, this is a crisis. To follow or not to follow. To rescue or not to rescue. And human viewpoint says, don't do it. Why, the lion didn't pick on you, and he just took one lamb. What's one lamb? And after all, what are you going out there and getting with? That crook that you haul sheep out from under the brush? That baseball bat that you carry to beat off the uh, wolves and the coyotes? That slingshot? Well, hey, listen, that slingshot won't make any dent on that lion. You can't hurt him. You see, David didn't have a 375 H&H Magnum with a four-power loophole scope. He didn't have uh, any sidearms like a 44 mag. He didn't have a gun bearer. He didn't have a safari. He didn't have anything of that sort. But he went out after the lion. Why? Divine viewpoint. God put me on this job. I do my job as under the Lord. I go out after the lion. The Lord takes care of me. After all, the battle is the Lord's. And so he went out after the lion and he killed the lion. And then, of course, he faces another crisis. Is he going to get fat-headed because he killed a lion? Most people who'd kill a lion would run into town with the head of the lion and tell everyone about it and how they did it be written up in all the local papers, and they probably would elect him mayor in ten years. No, he didn't. He didn't say anything about it. He kept his mouth shut. He did it as unto the Lord. He went, took the lamb back to the fold, and that was that. Then, of course, this isn't the end of it. He has another test. Now, the second test is a big old bear, and a bear just hits you with one hook, and you've had it. Breaks everything from the skull right on down to the spinal column. 
and uh, that's the end of the line. So no one's going out and fight a bear. And he still doesn't have any equipment for bear hunting, but he goes out after the bear when the bear comes and takes the lamb. Now, both occasions demanded the predominance of the divine viewpoint over the human. The battle is the Lord's. He went out and he killed them both. He delivered the lamb in each case. Even though after he had killed the lion and the bear came, he could have said, better to be a living hero than a dead one. I'll sit this one out. Not at all. He always did his job as unto the Lord. He did it faithfully. He didn't make any parade about it. Now, that's the divine viewpoint. And when that bear came into camp and when that lion came into camp and took a lamb, God was preparing his servant David for the great crisis of Israel. For after all, Goliath, as big and as tough as he is, he is absolutely nothing compared to a lion or a bear. Now go back to 1 Samuel 16, verse 11. Behold, he keepeth the sheep. What his father doesn't know, and what no one else knows, is that God has taken a young man and put him out in the desert there, near Bethlehem, that hilly country, that desert country, with a flock of sheep, and God is preparing his servant. And so David is brought in on this occasion, and David is anointed, but he immediately doesn't raise an army and go into to Jerusalem and overthrow Saul, not at all. Now, there was another test that he had to face before the crisis came. He had to face the test of prosperity. You see, he's had the test of great victory, the test over the lion, the test over the bear. But there was another test which came along in verse 19 of chapter 16. Saul was suffering what, from what appears to me to be manic depressive. And he was just part of the time, he was just as psycho as anyone you ever saw. And the psychiatrist had said that what he needed was musical therapy. He needed to hear good music, but apparently the music around the palace wasn't too good. It was too jumpy or something. And they needed to bring someone in who could play softer music. So they... Uh, had to find someone who could play this early piano, the great-great-grandfather of the piano, which was a ten-string thing called a psaltery. And there were, so they searched throughout the land, and they found one boy who could really play a psaltery, and that was David. See, when the sheep at night would be gathered together and the wolves would start to howl, the sheep get nervous and upset. So David learned to play the psalter to keep them cool, and he'd haul out this ten-string job and start playing and singing to them. And the sheep would quiet down because they'd hear a familiar voice, the familiar sound, and they would get relaxed in spite of the howling. So David also learned to play this musical instrument. So during these psychotic periods, they brought David in to play to him. And the upshot of the whole thing was that David became the armor bearer of the king. Now, this doesn't mean anything to you, but it meant a great deal to people who lived at that time. For a young man to be the armor bearer of the king, the next step, well, he could take his choice. He could go up the uh, State Department pipe and eventually become a high diplomat. Or he could go the military pipe and eventually he would be a general officer. And every mother, of course, in Israel wanted her son to be the king's armor bearer because it was guarantee it was a sure way to success. And about the time everyone thought that David was going to stick around and be a famous man someday, what does David do? He slips off and he goes back to the sheep. God had a place to train him, and he went back to the training ground where God wanted him to be. Now, this brings us up to the crisis in the next chapter. In the next chapter, we find the Goliath in verse 4, the champion of the Philistines. 
And he is declared in verse 4 to be six cubits and a span, nine feet two inches, which certainly makes him above normal height. He had a helmet of brass on his head, and most people couldn't wear it. It means solid brass, which means must have weighed at least 10 or 12 pounds. I'd like to see the average person wearing a helmet weighing that much. It's certainly much heavier than the helmet liners of World War II. The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. He wore a coat, brass coat, a breastplate actually, 148 pounds, reduced to our weight. He wore greaves of brass upon his legs and a target of brass, a target's a small shield which he wore on his shoulder. The staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, which of course means very large. And the spear's head, we know exactly how much the spear, the iron head weighed, 600 shekels of iron, 17 pounds. And in verse 8, he trumpets out his challenge. Old loudmouth goes to work. And he does a pretty good job when it comes to sarcasm. He stood and he cried to the armies of Israel and said unto them, Why are ye come out to set your battle in array? In other words, what brought you boys out? Not to fight, surely. A little sarcasm here. Am not I a Philistine? Do you realize you're fighting Philistines and I'm one of them? And ye are the servants of Saul. Now, this is the real sarcasm. He didn't say, ye are the servants of the Lord. The reason he didn't say that is because the whole bunch of them are in an apostate condition due to the fact not... Out of the whole army there of possibly thirty or 40,000 men, you can't find even a thimbleful of divine viewpoint, as you will see in a moment. So he calls them servants of Saul rather than servants of the Lord. So he said, since you are the servants of Saul, choose you a man and let him come down to me, and we'll fight together, went on to say. And he said, if he wins, fine, you win. If he loses, well, that's tough. Now, verse 11. The army is there. All the professional soldiers, possibly over 30,000, maybe 35 or 40,000 men. In this group, in the army of Israel, we have some very courageous men. For example, we have Jonathan, who has already won the Congressional Medal of Honor for attacking a fortification all by himself. Furthermore, a fortification of Philistines. And in this particular garrison, there were over 250 Philistines, and Jonathan attacked the garrison all by himself and overcame them, for which indicates, of course, his bravery. The other brave men were here too, but I want you to notice verse 11. Old loudmouth out there has them all buffaloed because they're looking at life from the human viewpoint. When Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Old human viewpoint. They're right in panic palace, all of them. Then you notice the contrast in verse 12, two words, now David. And the contrast is that David is out with the sheep when this takes place. He's quite a distance from the battlefield. But the thing that brings him to the battlefield, interestingly enough, is another bit of human viewpoint. Jesse's at home thinking of ways to get his three sons promoted. And one of the best ways, you see, every uh, family had to provide for their own people in the service. In other words, if you were in military service, your family would have to provide your food, your rations. And it was time to send some rations up to his three sons who were in the army including Eliab, who is the second lieutenant and has command of the first platoon of A Company of the 3rd Battalion. And uh, it's time to send it up. And so when he decides, I better entrust someone to this mission who will do it right. I can't afford to send my servants for the rations this time because I now have ten beautiful cheeses, these big cheeses. And uh, I'm going to send these up to the battalion commander. 
I'm going to send them up there so the bat commander will promote my boy. Human viewpoint. And I've got to get someone who has sense enough to get these cheeses in the right slot for the battalion commander, so I think I'll bring David in for the job. And so up to the uh, front goes David. That's how he got there. Human viewpoint. His dad called him in and gave him all the instructions, and David, of course, took them up. And notice verse 20, David rose up early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper. He left the sheep in charge of someone. And then he went up, and when he got there and turned the food over, the rations over to the quartermaster, he happened to hear old loudmouth, so he went up with the rest of the troops to see what was going on. And this was D plus 40, loudmouth was still going strong and still had no takers. Everyone, for 40 days now, they've been sitting in their tents, polishing their brass, shaking themselves to death. Probably there's been a tremendous run on Milltown. Uh, they have probably exhausted other types of negative sublimation. Uh, they've just about had it. They listen to him every day, twice a day, and no one goes out to take him. And in verse 24, this is how they stand with it. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they saw a man called Goliath, they fled from him and were terribly afraid. Now David hears him. And at the end of verse 26, this is the first expression of divine viewpoint. At the end of verse 26, David pipes up and says this. No one has said this for 40 days now. Old human viewpoint has predominated. Now, you can now hear this. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? That's the first expression of divine viewpoint in 40 days. David has the correct orientation. He has the right perspective. Immediately he sees loudmouth. He hears his challenge and immediately he responds with divine viewpoint. Why? Because divine viewpoint's right up there. He belongs to the Lord. People don't frighten him. Things don't frighten him. Circumstances don't frighten him. He wasn't afraid of the lion. He wasn't afraid of the bear. Why should he be afraid of old loudmouth out there? Just because he's wearing 148 pounds of boilerplate, why should he be frightened? Just because he flexes his muscles and they're bigger than his whole face, why should he be frightened? He's just a man and he's an uncircumcised Philistine. So he's not frightened at all. And he just simply states... The correct orientation. In other words, he's just simply the man for the crisis. Why? Because he constantly looks at life from the divine viewpoint. And because he does, he's just ready. And he just opens his mouth and says something. And of course, in verse 27, it just shocked everyone around him. And apparently nearby was elder brother Eliab. Eliab with his whole platoon. Eliab for 40 days has been shaking in his greaves. And his whole platoon have been shaking with him. They've been absolutely frightened. They've been immobilized. But notice, people who never do anything except look at life from the human viewpoint, they can certainly criticize. And now get this criticism. And Eliab, his eldest brother, this is the one, remember, that Samuel wanted to make king. When he heard, when he spake unto the man, notice this, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. Why? For stating the divine viewpoint? No, this is just pure sour grapes. Jealousy. He hasn't done anything for himself. He's had 40 days to say, I'll go out and fight him. But he hasn't. But old Sour Grapes is right there. 
And now hear what he says to his brother. And this, again, is an attempt on the part of the devil to keep David from getting out there with Goliath. Why camest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep? Do you get the contrast? My name is Eliab, Lieutenant Eliab to you. I command the first platoon of this company. I have actually been trained to fight. I am a platoon commander. I am an experienced person. And you're just a little jerk with a flock of sheep. He's comparing his platoon to his sheep. But you see, the comparison is purely human viewpoint because you are what you think. Eliab is a big, handsome, nice-looking, fine second lieutenant. David is a great man in shepherd's clothing. And it isn't the clothing that makes the difference. David is the greatest leader of all time because of what he thought. Divine viewpoint in the frontal lobe. And no one ever whipped David because of what David thought. It was divine viewpoint all the way. And even his brother didn't whip him. All David had to do was to turn around and get into a fight with his brother. Why, you haven't done anything, brother, and go right at him, see. But he didn't. You see, here's a subtle attempt to sidetrack David, to get him into a fight, to get him into a rat race, to get him into an argument. Now, his brother was wrong, and his brother was unfair in his criticism, and what does David do? He ignores the whole thing. He says, what gives with you, and moves on. And then he moves into the tent, and then he tells the story of his experience, and then he makes the application of verse 36, Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he hath defied whom? The armies of emphasis, the living God. David said, moreover, The Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of the Philistine. He has been prepared. Divine viewpoint. So Saul, good old human viewpoint, isn't leaving us, however. I want you to notice how human viewpoint tries to get in the picture. Saul says to David, well, look here, boy, you wear my jersey with my number on it, and if you're lucky, they'll think I did it. See? There's a human viewpoint again. He says, you wear my armor. The king's armor was the most beautiful armor of all. Anyone could tell the king's armor. And, of course, you can see what's going on, human viewpoint. Suppose this boy is lucky. Suppose he did kill a lot. He might just kill that big man out there. And if he does, I'll just simply tell one, my armor did it. You can't help but do it in my armor, see? So he's going to try to get in for a piece of the praise, if any is due. And uh, if it isn't, well, that's all right. He may get his armor back someday. So David put it on. He said, uh, we read in verse 39, David girded his sword upon the armor. He put on the armor first. And it says, and he essayed to go. The word essayed means simply he was reluctant. He wouldn't go in that armor. Now notice the predominance of the divine viewpoint. It isn't Saul's armor that's going to make a great warrior out of him. You cannot put on armor. You cannot put on a uniform, actually, and be a soldier. You can't put on a uniform and be a leader. In military life, just because a man wears rank on his shoulder, it doesn't mean that he's a leader. You can't give a man a title and make him a leader. You Just because a man's a president of a corporation, it doesn't mean that he's a leader. Just because a man puts on clerical robes or wears black and talks with a pious expression, it doesn't mean that he's a leader spiritually either. Leadership is what you think, not how you look. 
David's a leader because of what he thinks. And you know what he does with that all that beautiful armor? He just takes it right off. Divine viewpoint wins at every point. You see, he's attacked by criticism. Divine viewpoint, ignore this burden, move on. He's attacked by skepticism, hasn't had enough experience. Divine viewpoint declares the experience and moves on. He is attacked by, put on my armor, boy, wear my number. He's attacked by the human viewpoint. Divine viewpoint sets it aside and he moves on. And when he gets ready to go out and face that giant, what is he wearing? The same old stinking clothes. Still has the smell of the woolies. He's carrying a shepherd's weapon, a slingshot. He goes to the brook and he picks up five, get this, smooth stones. You know why smooth? Well, he was a hand loader. He knew the importance of velocity, and he picked out stones that would have a true velocity. And you say, why five, one giant? Well, very simple. There were five giants in the armies. And Second Samuel chapter 21 records all of these giants. They're not recorded here. Second Samuel 21, 16 and following records actually five giants. Uh, there were, of course, first of all, there was the brother of Goliath, who's mentioned in Second Samuel 21, 19. Then there was another one mentioned in 2 Samuel 21:16, who was a giant, Ishbi Banab by name. And then there was Saf, who was another giant. The Philistines, by the way, were the last of the giants. They were generally tall. Some of them were abnormally tall, five of them. And then there was another giant called Six Fingers and Six Toes. His name is never given. And then finally there was Goliath. There were five giants in the army, and he could take on one or all. It didn't make any difference. He was ready for all of them. Now, of course, going out to the battlefield and in this with, and out of uniform too, of course, elicits some comment from Loudmouth. And Loudmouth takes one look at him in verse 42, and it says he disdained him. Literally, the Hebrew, the Hebrew says here he razzed him, for he was but a youth and ruddy, which means tanned. He had a good tan, and he had a nice-looking face. He had a handsome face. And the Philistines said to David. Am I a dog that thou comest to me with sticks? That's the shepherd's staff. And the Philistine cursed David by his Elohim. In other words, the giant cursed David by David's God, not by his gods, the giants, but by David's God. And the Philistine said to David, Will you come on over here, boy, and I'll give, make a nice meal out of you for the birds. I'll cut you in pieces, boy. In other words, he tries to intimidate him. Human viewpoint would be intimidated, of course. Then said David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a spear, and with a sword, and with a shield, human viewpoint, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, divine viewpoint, whom thou hast defied. Now at the end of verse 46, David says there is a God in Israel. I'm going to prove it. And in the middle of verse 47, the quintessence of the divine viewpoint. The battle is the Lord's. Now, you see, all the way through this chapter, you have these various thoughts expressed. Every thought expressed reflects doctrine, promises in the Word. It reflects everything that existed in the Old Testament Scriptures up to this time. And David had the canon of Scripture. It reflects everything that he's learned in the school of the sheep. In other words, here is a person who is prepared. He's not big yet. He's going to be a lot stronger before he's few, before he's through with this. But 
He has something in the frontal lobe, and that's the thing that counts. He has the divine viewpoint, and he's the man for the crisis. The battle is the Lord's. Now, verse 48, the divine viewpoint goes into action. Most people, human viewpoint, would take one good look at loud mouth up close, and they'd see those muscles up close, and they'd take off in the opposite direction. But David loads his sling and starts moving right toward the giant. And as he moves, he swings it around. He cranks it up. And finally, as he gets up within range, he releases. He spins and he releases, and the stone goes right to the X-ring. He hit the Goliath right between the eyes. Of course, a lot of bone up there, and it all did was knock him out. didn't kill him. So when old Loudmouth falls to the ground with a terrible thump, David charges right on, keeps right on moving, comes up beside Goliath, hauls out his sword, raises it up, and clunk, off goes his head. Then one more thing. Here's human viewpoint. I call it the bandwagon. You'll always find those who jump on the bandwagon. And don't kid yourself, wherever there is a bona fide revival, wherever there is honest serving of the Lord from the divine viewpoint, wherever the Lord's service is moving, there are always those who have the human viewpoint who climb on the bandwagon. Verse 52. And the men of Israel, who, by the way, for forty days and forty nights have been shaking in their tents, who have been frightened and fear and full of fear, the men of Israel and of Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines. Now everyone's a hero. Until you come to the valley and to the gates of Ekron, they chased the Philistines back to one of their forts, Ekron. Every man's a hero now. But what are they riding on? They're riding on the divine viewpoint of someone else. Now, you face the issue sooner or later. If you don't have a crisis today, you'll have one tomorrow. And every crisis in your life, every adversity in your life, every trial in your life, you are going to look at life from the human viewpoint and fall flat on your face like Saul, like Jonathan, like Eliab. All of these men were believers. And all of these men failed. And all of these men were in neutral when the crisis came. Or you're going to be like David. The divine viewpoint will take over in your frontal lobe, and you will have some of the greatest blessings in life, and you will have the greatest opportunities in life to serve and to honor the Lord because of divine viewpoint as over against human viewpoint. The battle is the Lord's is one of the greatest expressions of divine viewpoint ever given. And whenever you face any crisis, to put it in the Lord's hands is to say what David said, the battle is the Lord's. Now, Father... We're grateful for the opportunity of studying these things tonight. We pray that the Holy Spirit will take these things and make them clear to us and challenge us to look at life from the divine viewpoint and cause us to realize that we can only look at the divine viewpoint as we have doctrine in the frontal lobe, that without the doctrine of the Word of God, it is impossible to see life from thy view. And recognizing that we have the mind of Christ in the Scriptures, we pray that we might search them diligently and study and believe and claim and appropriate and utilize thy word that we might have the privilege of glorifying thee in the adversities, the trials, and the crises of life. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.